this special focus meeting. My name is, uh, for men, my name is Dave and I'm a compulsive overeater and the leader for this meeting. Please join me in the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. All right. I'm done. Okay. Uh, the format of this meeting is as follows. Two speakers will share for 20 minutes each, followed by a 10-minute question and answer, finishing up with the 10 minutes for open sharing. And the topic of this uh, session is uh, being a man in the program. And our first speaker is going to be Steve P. Steve, I'm a compulsive reader. I don't know if I guess that's recording. Okay. Well, uh, I only got asked to lead this about ten minutes ago, and of course the first reaction is, you know, what? You know, I've got no time for, to prepare. I mean, I gotta, you know, have a whole thing. I mean, I'm one of these people that, you know, even as a kid, I think I liked speaking uh, up at the front, you know, behind a podium more than I liked ice cream, and for me, that's saying a lot. So, um, you know. <laughs> Uh, it's great, but coming up here unprepared um, is tough. And then I thought, you know, it's like a story 40 years in the making. If I don't know this story by now, I'm I'm in big trouble. So, and thank God it's all guys. I don't have to, you know, make up special special good events, uh, you know, that I would if uh, sometimes the females are here or or restrict. Although being recorded is always an interesting thing. Um, okay, well let's uh, let's start. I um. Uh, I wish I could say sometimes that, uh, you know, I grew up in a abusive family and alcoholics and was beaten and we were, you know, dirt poor and, you know, uh, moved from one city to the next. I think that would give me an excuse. Uh, I've heard a lot of, you know, brutal stories uh, in these rooms and not all by just women who were molested or what have you, but stories about men um, that uh, that just make me, you know, make me cry. And, uh being a man, I don't like to cry or admit that I cry, but I do. Um, I came from a uh, relatively middle class, uh, lower middle class uh, Chicago family. Um, both my folks were married up until the point where I was 12. Um, both worked real hard at being um, good parents. They took classes and whatnot, um, but they were both children when they had me. Um, I got my birth certificate a few years back. Uh, you know, to get my passport, and, you know, and then it came, and it had, you know, my folks' ages, and my dad was 22, and my mom was, had just turned 20 when she had me, and, uh, and I remember thinking, you know, are you kidding me? Like, what, what the heck were they thinking? Um, I, uh, uh, came, have come to realize that since that my, my mom has a, uh, uh, personality disorder called borderline personality disorder, which is uh, something that is somewhat out in the media, I guess, um, you know, the old uh, uh, mommy dearest type of thing, or if you watch The Sopranos, it was, you know, his mom. And basically it was uh, characterized by a person that's um, into conflict, a lot of conflict. They're very, um, they're very, uh, uh, what's the word, um, uh, fearful of abandonment incredibly fearful of abandonment, and yet all of their actions 
provoke people to want to leave them. Um, so uh, it was a, it was a challenging uh, thing to grow up. Uh, I, I usually felt isolated, separated. I would say, uh, you know, looking back in my memory, we had an upstairs room, and my brother and I lived in the upstairs floor of the of the uh, house, which had our own bathroom, and you know, it was a very spacious room for both of us. And uh, I, you know, would usually just sit up there and read. I mean, that was my my thing, just kind of sit up there, read, isolate, and obviously, you know, you can always eat when you read. Um, you know, that was the key thing. I had a, uh, my own TV up there, uh, you know, kind of flashing, flashing through childhood. I remember being my, um, being my own best customer when it came to any kind of candy sales. You know, we'd have the candy sales for Boy Scouts or Cub Scouts or whatever it would be, and you'd have a whole box full, and then, you know, it seemed to just go down and down and down, and then I was end up giving out my allowance for whatever was up, was left there, uh, and and really a sense of uh, I'm you know I'm not good enough or or even worse just a sense of I don't fit in. Uh, I never really felt like I was a you know that saying in in the big book about you know uh, felt separated from life you know or when Bill says you know I was a part of life at last uh, that that those terms really sank in with me because. It wasn't until much later that I felt a part of life at last, uh, and it was really more so during the height of my disease. So I was a good student, um, didn't do any sort of drugs go- growing up, um, you know, not so much that I was like a, an angel, so much as I thought that if I ever got caught or, you know, the fear of dying the one time that I was ever going to do drugs, and everybody would have thought I was a junkie the whole time. Uh, so it was really a, a fear-based existence and a fear-based childhood, especially after the, after the divorce. Uh, my, my father left and, um, you know, things at home became really challenging. I was essentially, you know, the, the second in command uh, that would, you know, try to keep things on par. You know, try, hopefully mom comes home in a, in a good mood today. You know, what kind of mood is she going to be in? You know, what can we do to try to make her keep her in a good mood? So... In that respect, I guess I can associate a lot with people who uh, have alcoholic upbringing, um, and and uh, it, to some extent, you know, my one of my biggest uh, one of my biggest, I guess, regrets or uh, you know, resentments against myself that I've worked on when I was growing up was that I I more or less abandoned my brothers and sisters. I mean, I, I kind of used them as shields. You know, I mean, it's like, all right, I don't want to take the, the bear, the brunt of the, you know, the anger or whatever is going to come at me. So you know, I'm going to do my thing to the letter of the law, keep everything clean. But, you know, as far as helping them out in any way, shape or form, you know, you're on your own and you can uh, you can deal with the wrath and the consequences of your actions as, uh, you know, as need as need be. So that uh, was something that um, in any case, you know, I held on to quite a bit. I was uh, generally a, a well-liked kid. Um, I did have that kind of, uh, you know, sense of um, of wit, you know, in the sense of, you know, if anybody wanted to you know, get a zinger, I had all these zingers lined up. I was really intelligent. And I heard someone share in the room at one point, though, that, you know, that one thing that anybody could always get you on, it didn't matter, you know, how bad they were, how stupid they were, how clumsy they were, how, you know, unathletic they were that you could always pull up is they could always pull out the, yeah, well, you're fat, you know. Oh, yeah, look at, you know, look at your, look at your tits, you know, as you're, 
you know, jiggling on the basketball court, you know, because they had to play uh, sleeves and or shirts and skins, whatever it was. Um, and so, you know, that was always the thing. That was the thing that I that that was always held, you know, inside of me. Um, that that sense of separation, uh, the 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 fear, the anger, the the self-loathing of myself, um, self-loathing of myself. Uh, so that uh, growing up. You know, it was always the challenge. I got to high school. I went to an all-boys school, so I like to keep a uh, a sense that maybe that was a, um, you know, a thing where uh, people, um, you know, a resentment against the school and that, oh, I wasn't allowed to, you know, mingle with girls. But if I had been, I'd have been a total mess. I mean, you know, it was actually a pretty, a pretty divine kind of thing that I was able to, when I go, went to the high school, to just focus on studies and that was it. Otherwise, who knows where I would have ended up being. Uh, but then again, a lot of the things that I ended up having to go through uh, that I may have gone through as a 16 or 17-year-old, I didn't really end up going through until I went into college and became a 22, 23-year-old. Uh, very, very immature as far as relationships go. Uh, as far as the food went, uh, in high school, sophomore year, freshman year, I forget, uh, I was put on a uh, I was put on dawn patrol. Um, I was overweight going into football season, and so they ended up saying, "Well, okay, before school starts every morning, you got to come to the track and run two miles, and then you know go through the school day, then you go through you know these these extensive practices." And uh, at first, I hated it, and then I ended up really liking it, and it worked, you know. And uh, that later on in life led to. Um, Time here. That led to um, me really being a uh, an exercise bulimic. I ran marathons. Uh, I used working out as as my way of not having to deal with the consequences of eating mass volumes of food and, and food that was really really bad for me. Uh, so bulimia was never an issue for me. But there was that exercise bulimia. Uh, one of my favorite uh, <laughs> one of my favorite pre recovery stories was I once ordered a pizza uh, at about mile, you know, 20 of 24, so that, it, you know, I, I brought the money in or card or whatever and ordered from a payphone so that by the time I got running those last four miles or whatever, I could go right and pick up that pizza. I didn't have to wait, you know, to have them make the pizza for 40 minutes. It was going to be right there and ready. Um, kind of made sense at the time. I look back on that and think, yeah, that might have been a, a clue that I had some issues with eating. Um and so the weight, you know, uh, from high school all the way through college was kind of one of those roller coaster up and down deals. Uh, living in Chicago, I would, uh, you know, very regularly uh, put on 40 pounds over the course of a winter. And then come spring, it was time for the diet and, you know, time to look good for summer. Or, you know, the marathon training definitely helped that where I would take off 30 or 40 pounds. Uh, but it was it was one of those, you know, uh, bar graphs, kind of like the, you know, the Dow or something like that, where it was, okay, it goes up and down, but it's always going up. It's always eventually going up. And uh, so, um, after school, I, I actually did find uh, the perfect, perfect cure to, to my illness, which was to move to California. I mean, summer all year round, the women are hot, they're a lot nicer than they are, you know, back in Chicago, they're, you know, whatever, and this is, you know, this is the perfect, you know, the perfect place. Um, except for, you know, one small thing that I brought with me, which was myself. 
And so, you know, coming, coming here, uh, I ended up being in, um, in really the, the, uh, the lowest possible stage of my disease because I didn't, I had isolated myself almost completely with everyone. Uh, I was completely financially destitute. I was, uh, living off of a $250 a week draw and not really working at work and, you know, just a job I absolutely hated. Uh, Sunday would come around and my, stomach would tighten up and I'd think, you know, oh my gosh, I've only got like, you know, four more waking hours before I have to go to work, you know. And um, so it was it was really a, a you know, a, a low, a low, uh, low end in life. And um, I had a lady that I met when I was out here that kind of started me down the spiritual path with a, with a couple things. Um, and I remember one night she had some sort of I Ching or something like that that was that was, you know, you pick out like a rock and it would have like a saying on it, you know, faith or hope or, you know, blah, blah, whatever it was. And I pulled out the thing and it said surrender. And and I I started tearing up. I started crying. I was just like, I, I can't, I mean, I can't believe that, that God wants me to just give up. You know, to me, surrender meant just give up. Why don't you kill yourself? You know, it's over. And she tried to explain it to me and I just, you know, thinking back on that, I mean, she said everything that we would say here except I just wasn't getting it. And I did a, um, another spiritual program, but it was really all head level knowledge at that point. You know, my the the spirit of of my soul, whatever you call it, was um, was surrounded by you know uh, talked about in the big book by pomp, circumstance, and um, something else. I forget what it is, but uh, you know it was a tragedy or whatever it is. I mean, it was I was just so blocked off from there, and I knew about twelve step programs. I had had people that had um, done 12-step programs, you know, when I was growing up and that I would meet. And I always thought, well, that's, you know, that's spirituality, like remedial spirituality. You know, that's for, for those low-end people that really can't quite get it. I'm, you know, I'm way up here. You know, in the meantime, I'm, um, you know, getting closer and closer to 300 pounds. I've got no good relationships in my life. I mean, a positive step for me was going from uh, an addiction to prostitution to having uh relations of people that were married. I mean, that was well, that was a big step for me. Wow, I'm really improving. Uh, but, you know, it was uh, it was really a a um, disconnected uh, existence. And, uh, you know, it just kind of went on and on. I mean, sit, sit at home and um, eat the you know, bag of Doritos and the, the pizza, order two pizzas and have, you know, at least one of them or, you know, part of one and part of the other so it didn't look like I really ate a, a full one that night. And, you know, then top that off with something sweet, top that off with something salty. Um, and I'm sure a lot of you guys can relate to stuff like that. Um, but that was, you know, that was my life. And so, um, you know, what happened, um, I actually met uh, someone who um, actually was a, a, my brother's ex-girlfriend. And she lived in Chicago. And we would write back and forth to each other online when I was pretending to work. And, uh, and one day... I said something about, well, what are you doing? And she says, I'm looking at this website, Overeaters Anonymous. And I said, hmm, why don't, yeah, why don't, I, you know, why don't I just take a look at that? And so I went on there, and they had the questions, and I think I answered yes to 12 of the 15, and sometimes to two of them. And I thought, yeah, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take a look at this thing, this OA thing, and uh, send away. And I said, well, you know, we'll see where our meeting's at, if it's convenient for me. Well... From where I, the meeting I went to on Tuesday nights, you could actually throw a rock from my backyard and hit this church. It was that close. So I had absolutely no excuse to not go. 
And uh, and when I went to my first meeting, there was only one guy, which it was actually amazing now thinking back that there was another guy there as opposed to uh, all women. So at least there was one other guy. And um, and I, I knew that that's where I needed to be. Um, I needed to uh, completely, oh, what was that, five? Okay, cool. Um, I needed to give myself over to this program. Um, I uh, I went diligently at it from the get-go. I was very honest about, I, I think God used a lot of my um, things, what I would what I would say that are really my, my core strengths um, that had been perverted by the disease into character defects. But in, to some extent, I, they were used. I, I had, you know, I had an ability to kind of just have this strange mental blank spot about working the program. You know, okay, well, I'll just do this next part. I won't worry about that next stage. You know, I'll just make a list of foods that I know I have a problem with. I won't say I won't eat them. You know, I'll just be willing to write down whatever foods I eat. You know, I'm not saying I'm going to eat good. You know, I'll just be willing to not snack in between meals. That doesn't mean I won't eat, you know, four truck driver meals, three truck driver meals. Um, and so, you know, step by step, things started going well. And, you know, that first year in program uh, was, was, uh, was crazy. I think I lost 60, 70, 80 pounds. And, um, but my life was still a nightmare. I remember uh, a good friend of mine that, that's here, one of my best recovery friends, we'd been out one night and at a at a bar we were doing some swing dancing and she had seen some friends and went over to talk to her friends at the table and I sat there maybe five or ten minutes you know, as she was talking to her friends and just decided, you know what, screw her. She's you know, she just left me here and I just got up and laughed. You know, and I mean there were there were crazy things like that that, that were still going on in my life because I hadn't I hadn't really gotten into the nitty gritty. I was working the steps. Uh, I remember, you know, really working the fourth step with one fella and and him leaving and him saying, you know, you're going you're gonna to wonder if you really did this after I leave, but, you know, let me tell you, you really did it, you know, and I shared all of that, all the good that I thought I would never be able to tell another individual and, and uh, was able to, to share that with him and to continue to work the steps. Um, so, uh, and then the other thing is that, that really affected, I think, where I'm at today is, is really sponsoring other people, working with other men specifically, um, you know, I, I was laughing with a guy today, I can always judge my uh, level of recovery by when, you know, I'm comparing how good looking the women are in the in the room with, you know, oh, there's a, there's a new guy that came to the meeting, you know, and how excited I am by either or, you know, it's like, if I get really excited about the new girl, you know, we got some problems, if I get really excited about the new guy, um, and it's a, it's a pure recovery kind of thing, then, then I know at least I'm on the right track, at least I'm... I'm kind of centered and, and able to move forward in my program. Uh, and that's, you know, that's just me. Uh, I've got a, a lot of other issues in my life um, that I still have in my life. I, I really appreciate it. i got to find Terrell uh, for saying that. I've got coming up on eight and a half years of abstinence, and, uh, and it's been a real slippery abstinence. And life has been, in a lot of respects for me the last couple of years, real shitty. You know, And for him to say that, it's on tape now, oh well. <laughs> um, for him to to to, uh, to come out and say that about uh, you know having that that tough period of time is was really comforting because you know just because you're abstinent long term you know in terms of years doesn't mean life goes the way you want it to. I would say that I have been more angry at God over the last year over stupid stuff 
that, but at the time, I am, I am, I'm really, really ready. I'm flipping the bird. I am, you know, pulling everything back. I am stomping around like a, like a two-year-old, three-year-old having a temper tantrum. And, uh, and it's scary, you know, but ultimately it seems like, again, like I kind of, to equate it back to that weight chart, ultimately my relationship with God, you know, my emotions may keep going up and down, up and down, up and down, but that relationship with God, you know, even if it takes some dips, is still always going up. Um, so uh, I guess we got a minute to, to wrap it up. Um, you know what life is like now. It's it's a it's always a challenge, but but I find when I'm working, especially with other men in, in recovery, when I'm going to men's retreats, which are just amazing uh, gift in my life, and the people that I've met from there, the people that I maybe I only see you once a year, twice a year, something like that, uh, or you're coming to the meetings, um, coming to the men's meetings. It's, it's a real gift, and, uh, and it's allowed me to, to uh, you know, build a life that I always wished that I had when I was back in my disease. So thanks for being here, and no matter what, keep coming back. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. And our next speaker we have for you today is TJ. Thanks, Dave. I'm just going to put myself in water here. Hi, my name is TJ, and I'm a compulsive overeater. That's, that's why I'm here. Um, I've, uh, I'm going to tell my story. And it started in Chicago. As I was listening to you, Steve, I was just amazed at some of the similarities. Sometimes in meetings you hear people say, um, uh, we all have the same story, or we all we have different stories, but uh, there's a lot of commonality in the way we feel or the way we reacted. But there was a lot of similarities between my story and Steve's. I was born in Chicago as well. And... Um, I did come from an alcoholic family, a long history of it, generation after generation, which I discovered very slowly. You know, it's amazing that I didn't realize it when I was growing up. Um, but in talking to other people who were in similar situations, um, it's not so amazing. It's pretty common to uh, not understand what's going on uh, when you're growing up. Um, and my introduction to 12 Steps came uh, because of that as uh, through uh, ACA, Adult Children of Alcoholics, and a friend, um, Jerry, who I met, um, oh, I was about 30 years old, I think, at the time, uh, right around the time my dad died um, of, of his alcoholism. And uh, I was chatting with my friend Jerry. Uh, we were talking about boyfriends. And he, I was talking about trouble I was having. And um, he was listening carefully to what I was saying. He said, you know, did you ever, is your, was your dad an alcoholic? <laughs> I said, well, I think he was. In fact, he just died last year. And he said, you got to come to this meeting with me. So I, I went to it with him. And uh, it was a real eye-opener. It was really difficult for me. But it was great that I had somebody there to support me, somebody who introduced me to what was going on that I could ask questions of, that um, made me feel more comfortable. And uh, I, I, I think about him from time to time. I don't see him much anymore. He's in Chicago and I'm here. And um, um, 
the insight that he had into me and what might help me uh, was really important for me uh, because I wasn't ready to accept any help. I wasn't going to get it on my own. And it really required that I felt some kind of trust with somebody who, you know, offered his, his advice to me and that I took it. And I'm really glad that I did. Um, so um, I went to those meetings a lot and I learned a lot about um, the big book and about uh, recovery. And uh, but I was still fat, kind of. I was up and down. Um, I was, uh, I, I don't remember my first awareness of being overweight. Um, but somewhere around uh, the end of grammar school, beginning of high school, I remember thinking, you know, i got to do something about this. i got to go on a diet. And I did. And it, and it kind of worked. And I, I went up and down with that all through high school uh, and even through college. Um, but it was always on my own. You know, I always thought that I could do all this on my own. And... Um, maybe that's a maybe that's a male thing. Maybe that's uh, uh, growing up the way that I did. I don't know, but it's something that I still struggle with today. Is trying to do everything on my own. <clears throat> so uh, uh, eventually, I um, I found my way into an, another twelve-step program um, that helped me a lot. Um, it, it, I don't see it out here. Um, it's called um, arts. Artists recovering through the 12 steps. And the point of that is, you know, this emotional void. I feel this emotional void. And I still feel it today from time to time. And I, I, I guess, you know, you, using food was one way of filling that up. And um, using creativity instead um, as a way of filling it up was something that really helped me a lot. So I spent a lot of time in this. Um, other 12-step program. Met a lot of people in other programs, a lot of people in AA, a lot of people in um, Al-Anon, a lot of people in NA, and so forth. So I got a lot of different perspectives on recovery from people. And yet there was a certain commonality, you know, that we all share um, the uh, emphasis on spirituality um, and so forth. Uh, so I... I um, met somebody there who was in OA, and uh, she did a similar thing to what Jerry did to me, introducing me to ACOA, saying, "Did you ever try and address your eating disorder with, uh, you know, 12 steps?" And I thought, "No, I had no idea. What's that all about? How could that possibly work?" And uh, so I went to a meeting with her, and um, I felt at home immediately. And I, I realized that this was a way that I could deal with my eating disorder. And uh, but I looked at it as a diet. I had a certain amount of success. You know, um, she was my sponsor. Um, I had a food plan. That was like the very first thing I did is get a food plan. But it was a diet. Uh, I treated it that way. And that's the way I reacted to it, and it worked. Um, but I don't think my heart was in it in the right way. I think I was a little afraid to. Um, admit that um, eating for me was a disease, that it was something that could be addressed by spiritual means, um, that it wasn't just a physical thing, that I could do it over with and be gone. And it's kind of strange that I would think that way because I had such insight, I thought, 
into other aspects of 12 steps and recovery through the arts program and through the ACA and stuff. Uh, so I, I am constantly amazed at how I even found my way into OA early on and um, how I didn't see so much that it had to offer. And that may be one of the reasons that I left. Uh, that, that was a real difficult thing for me. Um, I moved from Chicago uh, in 1999, and I came here. Uh, it was a good move for me. Um, I wasn't moving to escape anything. I have good friends here. Um, I'm self-employed, and my work is kind of around the country anyway, so work wasn't an issue for me. Um, but I convinced myself conveniently, that I had so much else to do that I couldn't find a meeting this week, but I, I would find one next week. Six years later, six years I did this, and my weight was, you know, I, I, don't, I, don't, I have to remember not to concentrate on it because I gained maybe 25 pounds, but that's not what's important. I mean, you hear stories of people gaining and losing hundreds of pounds over the course of years, and I, I'm not going to judge myself favorably or disfavorably by stating that number. I suffered a lot for those six years. I got more and more isolated, more and more hopeless. I remember waking up in the middle of the night afraid that these 25 pounds were going to turn into 250 pounds. And they might have. They really might have. But it was that fear, I think, that really uh, was the most painful thing. I increasing loneliness, um, and fear and kind of like I was out of control. So one day I had it and uh, I just looked online and found the Oasis in no time and made my way to a meeting there. All of you from San Diego know the Oasis and those of you who aren't from here, you can find out more about it. Um, it's a wonderful kind of clubhouse we have. I don't know if that's the right term, but uh, that will do. And um, that was two and a half years ago. And I learned a lot about myself in the first couple of months there about um, what I had learned in 12 Steps and what I hadn't learned. You know, I came into it with a certain amount of, oh, it's nice to be back and I know all of this stuff. Just give me the diet again and I'll go on it and everything will be better. Uh, but I resisted that somehow, I, I guess wisely, because I didn't approach it in the same way as I did before. Um, I think I knew that I needed something more and I think I knew that this had to be more serious and, and forever. I think that was the thing that I was afraid of all along, is that this is something that I had to deal with for the rest of my life. And it sounds like a sentence and it doesn't feel that way now, but it did, I think, at the time, and that was part of the whole fear, um, that, it, that it was a sentence and um, that it was something that I was going to have to suffer forever and that there was never going to be an end to it. Um, but <clears throat> it doesn't feel that way now. So I, I just wrote down a few things about keep coming back because that's what I have to keep telling myself because I don't want that to happen again. And it's really easy. It's really easy for me not to go away from the program. All I can do is keep coming back. It's easy to say that. And for all I know, I may relapse again. But um, if, if I 
think about it one day at a time and just keep coming back, keep coming to meetings. Uh, we have a wonderful men's meeting um, on Sundays that's uh, very important to me. Um, there's other meetings in town I go to as well, but somehow that one is just really great. In fact, within, it might have even been the very first meeting I was at, uh, someone came up to me, Henry, and said, hey, there's a men's meeting, you got to come to this one. And uh, as I'm talking, I'm hearing myself say how important these people have been. You know, there's individual people that have really made, uh, helped me succeed in the program, you know. Somebody who was there for me. Um, somebody who I listened to and took their advice and went to a meeting. So I'm really grateful for that. I'm really grateful for these people. And I have to give myself a little bit of credit for listening to them because I can resist that really well. I can resist other people's advice and help. Um, so I try and not do that as much as I can. Uh, a couple of things I wrote down. One of the things you hear, no matter how far down the scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. I like that one for one thing because it's kind of ironic the way they use the word scale, even though it's from the big book and talking about alcohol. Um, no matter how far down the scale we've gone. Um, I used to think that, you know, no matter how low down you got, no matter how uh, awful your life has become, you still have a place in the meeting and you still have something to offer. And it does mean that. It does mean that. But um, one of the problems that I have is uh, thinking of myself as not, normal, not fitting in, not being just like all of you guys. I can really easily think of myself as, I don't really belong here. I've never weighed 897 pounds. I've, uh, uh, my life is better than yours or yours or whatever. I don't belong here and, you know, put you all down. Uh, and that sets me up for not coming back. Uh, so I have to remember that that's uh, an unhealthy thing for me. And on the other hand, in the next minute, I sometimes can think that I'm worse than all of you, that there's, you know, I don't belong here, that uh, my problems don't fit in here, um, that you all are different than me. And uh, it, it's just crazy. It just puts me on the total opposite end of the scale. And the truth is that I belong here that I'm as much like any of you as any of you are like each other. Um, and uh, this is the place for me. Because that's the way it feels right. You know, it just feels right for me to be in these rooms. It feels right for me to be in men's meetings uh, and to be able to talk about my life and share it with people no matter what. So no matter how far down the scale I've gone, no matter how much weight I've lost, no matter how much weight I've gained, um, my experience is my experience, and it's important for me to open my mouth and talk to people, and it's important for me to sit here and listen to what other people have to say. So sometimes I feel like I'm making no progress and I want to quit, and sometimes I feel like I've graduated and I've done everything I need to, and I want to quit. Um, uh, sometimes I feel isolated and out of contact with everybody else, and, and I want to quit. And sometimes I feel like I want everybody to back off and I'm having too much contact and I want to quit. So all of these things 
make me want to quit. My disease wants me to quit really bad. And it can take good stuff and it can take bad stuff and just say, you know, just go away. This place is not for you. But it is. It's really the only place that I've had any amount of success dealing with my eating disorder and other things, dealing with my dad's alcoholism. Um, I've been in sexual compulsive meetings before. I've gotten a lot of help from there. Uh, who knows where other kind of meetings I may wind up. But I do know that if I wind up with any of these other things that there are other meetings for, there'll be a place for me there, too. Um, five minutes. Okay, that's about right. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, I, I said the stuff about wanting to quit and not quitting, keeping coming back. Um, and that's important. But I want to talk about life outside of these rooms because that's there and that's important for me. Um, and when I want to quit and leave, that's what draws me, you know. Uh, I've gotten everything I can out of here. I'm going to go out and date. Uh, oh boy, that brings up a whole bunch of issues. So, uh, body image and self-esteem and weight and of you know, desirability. Um, they go hand in hand for me, you know. Um, the better I feel about myself, the more I want to go out and establish relationships. And the more I want to not come back here because I don't need that. And I know that's not healthy. So I have to remember that there's a balance between coming here and di diving in and making this my whole life and going out there and abandoning this program and living my life to its fullest. Both of those things are not good for me. Um, I have to make recovery a part of my life, and I have to make my life a part of my recovery. So that, that's the whole idea of balance is really important for me. And balance doesn't mean that everything is stuck right in the middle and 100% equal. A balance is a thing that's got a little pivot in the middle, and it kind of goes like that, you know? Stuff changes. A little bit comes on here, and a little bit comes on there. So there's always this kind of, you know, dynamic. My life is changing. My desire to talk at a meeting, my desire to be at a meeting changes. Sometimes I want to, sometimes I don't. Um, so I just let that be. And I... Maybe maybe age has something to do with um, not being so impatient for me. Um, I like knowing that I might feel shitty today, but it's not going to last forever. It's just not. And I might feel really great today and want to go eat over it or something. And that's not going to last forever either. Uh, and I, I take some kind of comfort in that, knowing that um, uh, I can deal with these things. And, you know, these swings aren't as, as bad as they might otherwise be in the past. So uh, my abstinence now is easier, I think, than it's ever been. And maybe because I take it a day at a time. I like that saying a lot, one day at a time. Um, it's the only thing I think that gets me over that idea that coming here is a sentence, like I talked about before. You know, if I think I have to be here for the rest of my life, um, it sounds like something I don't want to do. But if I just remember that I just come back today, do my meditation today, plan my food today, um, 
it'll just happen naturally. The rest of my life will just take place one day at a time. So I like one day at a time. Um, it helps me a lot. So, um, keep coming back. That's the thing I wanted to focus on, I think. It's important for newcomers to hear it, and it's important for old-timers to hear it, too. Um, I think sometimes maybe more important, for me at least, the longer I'm here, the more I have to remember that I have to keep coming back. Another one of my favorite slogans, there's only two reasons to go to a meeting, because I want to and because I don't want to. And another one I hear a lot, um, though this, this has changed for me. I know I've got another relapse in me, but I'm not so sure I have another recovery. And that scares me. Um, I use fear a lot. Uh, I used to use fear to kind of beat me up, but, but I still use it. I like to hear people's horror stories in these rooms. I really do. You know, people uh, talking about how their disease has gotten them to a particular point of some medical emergency or whatever. It scares me. And it makes me, uh, I don't know, aware that that could happen to me, too. So um, what did I want to say about that? Um, the idea of, of thinking that uh, I don't have another recovery in me, that I really have to do it this time, and I'm not going to let myself relapse again, it's kind of scary. But there's another part of me that says, you know what, if it happens, it's okay, too, because you can always come back here and uh, find your recovery again. So I'm glad that I, 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 I'm not glad I had to relapse, but I'm glad I came back. So that's all I have to say. Now we're going to have uh, 10 minutes of Ask It Basket uh, responses from our leaders. So I'll, I'll read them and they can respond to them. Uh, first one says, uh, can you discuss challenges other than not uh, taking that first compulsive bite that you have faced in recovery? Uh, relationships, work, finances, sex, etc. Thanks for sharing. Who would like to take that one? And we'd like to ask you to sign uh, your name when, when you come up to speak. I'm going to mention the, the K word, Dave. I'm not going to mention it. I'm going to talk about it. See who proposes a reader. Dave's my sponsor, so he he knows of a young lady. <laughs> whose first name begins with K, who um, he heard about over and over over the course of, what, five, six years, something like that, on and off. So I would say, for me, personally, relationships, um, being a single man uh, out there in the world, you know, trying to trying to be the man, but then also trying to be, you know, a sensitive recovery man uh, is, is always a challenge. Uh, you know, I think any relationships, but especially when it gets to that, that personal level for me has always been a challenge. Was, it, was there like a follow-up on that, Dave? No. Like a, no. Just what has been the most challenging? Yeah. yeah, I would say that that has been the most most challenging thing, and that has been the thing that, uh, um, fortunately, I, I has always kept me coming to recovery. I, I, I loved what uh, TJ shared about um, 
about the horror stories and, and fear. And, you know, for whatever reason, I'm still, in certain respects, motivated by fear. And, man, I started going to those men's retreats. And to a person, when they would talk about their relapse story, almost all of them started out with their divorce or they were dating someone in a program or whatever. And, you know, the relationship ended and they, you know, went off the program for two years and put on 100 pounds. And I always thought, you know what, whenever I'm in that area and I get into a real difficult, challenging situation, that's where I'm going to really try to um, you know, try to make a, a dedicated thing into uh, into recovery. So, thanks, Gene. Sure. Next one for TJ. I'll just answer that one a little bit too. Relationships are the most difficult thing for me because they bring up all the issues that I've got. Every last one. <clears throat> this one says, "Does being a gay man affect your reaction to men's meetings?" and relationships with women in recovery. Um, I'm sure it does. Um, my biggest fear in coming to a men's meeting from when I first came two and a half years ago was being gay, was how are people going to react. So um, that, it was a non-issue. I got over it really quickly. Um, it's something I've dealt with a lot in my life uh, and in 12-step programs in, in other uh, recoveries, and this is San Diego. People are more open-minded. So uh, there was still a little bit of me that uh, feared that. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't think it's really affected my reaction. Um, although I often wonder, how does it affect other people's reactions in meeting other guys? Uh, with my relationship in women in recovery, um, I think that it has affected that. Um, my sense is that women feel more comfortable with a gay man talking about all sorts of issues. I don't know why that is, and it's not my issue. It's their stuff. Um, so it does affect my relationship with them. I think I find it easier to get along with women in recovery than some of the stories I hear from some of the other guys. But I don't know. That, somebody else would have to answer that part of it. Thanks. Okay, Steve, how do you get past uh, old, the old male ego, the old male ego to recovery? Uh, good question. Um, hmm. There's a great, there's a great um, AA uh, approved literature called the uh, Tebow Papers, um, which talks a lot about this. I mean, they really ever wanted, for, for whatever reason, I, I've done it in the big book studies, and for whatever reason, I've done it with sponsees and for whatever reason, the men, when, when I go through it with men, it's, it's a, it's a, an amazing, um, reaction because it's a doctor and maybe because it's a male doctor, maybe because he's studying more males than females at the time, uh, just hit the nail on the head as far as the male ego and that it, um, that it, <laughs> at one point in it, I think he says it doesn't need to be deflated, it needs to be abolished completely, you know, which is almost impossible. And so what he ended up coming to grips was, was that this is an impossible feat. I'm never, I'm never going to get beyond the male ego. I'm, I'm always going to be a male, so I'm always going to have a male ego. I mean, I'm not going to be transformed into a, uh, an alien or something like that. Uh, so I'm always going to have this. And so I think it's really just in that daily uh, contact with the higher power that allows me to, um, to put those things aside and to, to realize when, when that is coming into play. And when it's coming into play either at work or with relationships or what have you, and to be um, open and to just address it as, 
it's always going to be there, kind of like the disease. But uh, I saw a great, um, uh, a great. There's a, a film out, um, a Beautiful Mind, where he's got the, you know, not to give everything away, he's got the the voices and the imaginary friends, essentially, um, some some sort of mental illness or something. And it's like they they never go away. They're always there. You know, they're always yelling at you. They're always conjoling you. Hey, just you know, just one cookie. You know, come on, it'll make you feel better. Come on. You know, there's like a little girl voice and there's a friend voice and there's the screaming, yelling boss voice. And it's like they don't go away. So my recovery depends on being able to, you know, either tune them out or just kind of walk along knowing that I'm just going to keep doing what I do. All right. Thank you. We've got about three more minutes. So uh, here's the next one. Do you sponsor women? Or have women sponsors, and why does that happen? Uh, never Steve recovery, uh, recovering over reader. Never been sponsored by a woman. Um, have sponsored women, you know, brief stages. Uh, and, and what was it? Why? Why? Or why not? I don't do a lot of women sponsoring just because they're, I think, you know, for me, there, there's a lot of women out there. So why, why a woman would absolutely need to have me? Uh, I generally talk to Dave about it. I know he does it. Uh, he's my sponsor, so I, I run it by him. If there's any issues and something came up about a year or so ago with, with a woman where, uh, you know, her boyfriend was having a big, huge hissy fit and, you know, I said, hey, you know what, I, that's not my deal. I don't need to be involved in that. So um, it just didn't work for my recovery to do it. Got time for about one more. This one is: uh, What can you find at a men's retreat that you can't, that you won't find at a regular meeting? Um, I went to my first men's retreat last year, the one up in Santa Barbara, uh, and it wasn't like a regular meeting. Uh, for one thing, the retreat is so much nicer because you got that intensity of you know hour after hour, day after day. Um, but <clears throat> what can you find at a men's retreat that you can't find at a regular meeting? You know, I think uh, the the escape. You know, there are times I go to a meeting and I'm thinking, oh, I got to get out of here. I'm going to go eat, or I'm going to go do something else. But when I'm at a retreat, um, I'm there for the whole day, two days, three days, and there's something uh, that teaches me how to make this part of my life. One day at a time, you know. If, if I can, if I can be totally in recovery for one day, I can be totally in recovery for every day, and for the rest of my life. So it's kind of an ideal, and I don't always feel that way, but that's what's cool about retreats, I think. Okay, real quick, My first, my first men's retreat up north. There was a fellow that started sharing. He said, you know, at one point, he said, oh, well, my mind's not playing the game of who's the best looking woman in the room. I usually can have, you know, get something out of recovery. And I thought, oh my gosh, this is where I belong, right? Well, it turns out he was a priest. So I think there's something to be said about males that, you know, we, we all belong together. And, um, you know, as far as my experience with the, with the men's retreat, there's something about being in, in, a, in a company of men uh, that, that, especially men centered on recovery, that brings out recovery like nothing I've experienced, um, you know, be it gay men, straight men, old men, young men, single men, married men, having that group of men put their egos aside, you know, for the course of the weekend and just, you know, focus on love and recovery is something that you really can't 
explain to someone, you really just kind of have to experience it. So I really encourage everybody to try to do that at least once. Thanks, Steve. Okay, now we have time for three minutes. Now we have time for three-minute pitches uh, from the floor. Would somebody like to share with us? Sure. And please sign the, the release form up here when you share. Yeah, yeah, because we're going to be taped. Hi, my name is Maurice, and I'm a grateful recovering uh, compulsive eater. Um, I guess kind of, I, I, I wanted to share that, uh, and it's kind of like sharing and a question in, in a men's meeting, that um, since I remember like 13 years old in my life, no matter where I am or how I am, what's going on, whether it's a, um, even in a men's meeting like this and everything, I'm looking outside in the uh, pool and trying to see which is the best looking women. And... Uh, and that happens to me at church. That happens to me at the meetings. And on Saturday we have a meeting and there's maybe 50 women. And I'm always thinking all the time, which is the best five women? And what am I going to do with one of them? Will I take them over for a weekend and things like this? Would that be hindrance in my recovery? I mean, of course, I know that there's a, a good amount of sex addiction in my life. But I haven't addressed it uh, yet, ever going to any sex addicts meetings or anything like that. But, of course, this question would be very easy to do it with my sponsor, which is Steve here with, with us. But I just thought of bringing it up. Um, this is something that's incredible that happens to me at church. I mean, in every church, and I go to every Sunday in my life, I've been to church every Sunday. And it's always kind of strange to say, is it ever going to disappear? I mean, one thing is looking at a woman and and uh, admiring a woman and everything, but the other thing is ruminating that part of the uh, uh, the obsession. And I know that my main addiction is food. I got several other ones, but food is my main addiction. That's the core addiction. The other ones are just kind of uh, relation uh, related to. And uh, well, thank you very much for letting me share. And uh, it's been like about five years or so. I've been an absent. Thanks, Roy. Thank you, sir. Who's next from the floor? All right, Doug. I'm Doug. I'm a compulsive reader. Hi, Doug. Uh, Boy, I tell you, men's, men's Retreats are, I've been to two, well, I've, actually I've been to two different types up in Santa Barbara. Um, and one of the things besides just uh, my fear being a gay man also, uh, I was afraid I was going to go to this thing and there's going to be all these male egos and it was going to be pure hell for a weekend. It was quite the opposite. Um, and I think the best thing I've gotten out of it is not only 
uh, getting closer with the, the guys that I traveled up from San Diego to Santa Barbara to this retreat, um, was also meeting all the other men that were involved in the retreats, uh, getting to know people from different walks of life that I don't normally associate with, uh, getting to spend quality time uh, on a one-to-one -on -one basis with, with some of these guys. Um, and it's been a learning curve for me, too. I, I met a guy at the last time I went up to the retreat that I was, the last time I'd seen him, he could hardly walk without a walker, and he was playing basketball at the last retreat. And that was really, really good for me. I needed to see that, that, I, that uh, men can, can work this program and cover, because... I've had my rough go at it, and, um, but I'm, I'm staying here. Because if I don't stay here and go back out, like you were saying, I don't know if, if I'll be back. So, thanks, guys. Thanks, Doug. My false name, Bubba X. I'm Dave as compulsive reader. And I came this weekend with a, a relatively an open mind, and I came to this meeting with probably less than an open mind. But I did hear some powerful things this weekend. And first off, uh, yesterday I was having a chat with a, a guy that I pretty much respect because he's got some time in the program. He's got an abstinence that works. He's one of the most accurate men I've ever met. In fact, he sent me a spreadsheet once in terms of what it took for him to drop over 150 pounds. And, you know, I told him, I said, you're just such a rocket head, you know. I wish I could do what you do, which is to be so literally accurate. I mean, for a year he wrote every single thing that he put into his body on a spreadsheet. And the weight fell off like water through holes. But he said, you know what I noticed for you, because we spend time, I call it sharpening swords. We're both really smart, but I'm smart and fat, and he's smart and thin, so who's better off? Um... He said, I think what I'm hearing, and I'm sharing with this to you guys, so maybe it'll help you, but it opened my eyes. He said, you have to, he says, I don't think you can differentiate between the truth and the lie. He said, come to the program, and that's what you're looking for. You're looking for an influence to differentiate between the truth and the lie and what you're trying to accomplish. That was a slap, but it was a good slap because he wasn't trying to hurt me. He was just another guy who says, you know, you keep telling me you're in pain, but yet you're not ready to stop eating excess and inappropriate food. You know, why does that spreadsheet scare you? And so I went home last night and I talked about it with someone else. And it's like, and today I ran into somebody who I happen to know is the longest abstaining member of the male population in the fellowship. And he asked me, how are you doing? And this is a guy who offered to sponsor me about, what, six years ago, and he said, them's the rules. I headed for the hills, man. I was not ready to hear those three words. Them's the rules. Um, tonight he just said, you know, I care about you. This is killing you. You know, and I said, yeah, you're right. And uh, I, I, I fell into his chest and I was crying. I said, you scared me. He said, no. The disease scared you. Because what's it going to look like when you get food sober? 
what's it going to be about when you're no longer given liberty to take excess and inappropriate food, which I know is killing me. Nobody has to show me any wisdom or any spirituality. I know every time that I choose to eat car parts, as my loving friend over here calls it, that I'm killing myself. You know, it's like having a hamburger with Drano. And yet I'm doing it. And so it's like, what's it going to look like? You know, um, for one thing, it's got to look like just for today. Because if I try to do this whole process, I dropped 160 pounds in this program and kept it off for six years. And I was really blessed and I had a lot of prestige because the only way you get to be the king or queen of OA is to lose the weight. You know, they wouldn't care if you walked on water. If you're thin, they think you're holy. Um, I was insane the last time I had recovery at the physical level. And with men, the one thing I find out is, yeah, it's instincts. You know, I definitely wanted to have sex with everyone I met, men or women, when I was a child. Then I learned that I like girls better than boys. But the truth of the matter is my instincts, the desire, which is what this other guy said, it's all about desire. You know, somebody said to me 20 years ago, your desire to recover has to be greater than your desire to eat. Or you just keep on eating. And it's like, ow, you know, it's pretty painful to, um, to recognize that I'm absolutely helpless I don't like being powerless over food. Now, you guys remember at the retreat, the guy who said, I'm a corrected eater. He says, I'm not going to let myself say every day, I'm powerless over food and my life is unmanageable. Because he says, it's defeating my purpose. And he said, I'm a corrected eater. And it's like, all right, so it's a word game. But anyway, to let you guys know, it's like, if I get a sponsor and do what's necessary, I don't know what it's going to look like. I know that what I'm doing right now isn't working. And thank you both for being honest. It's... It's hard to see other people succeed when, you know, you fall. But you come back and you do what you got to do. And today it's like, tell, I'm going to ask this man to say, it'll be my sponsor to say, okay, so give me the instructions. This time when you say them's the rules, I'll say, okay, what's next? Thanks. That's all the, uh, now time to close the session. Uh, uh, let's thank our speakers uh, and everyone who shared and all that have done service for this session. Let's uh, all stand and uh, have a circle and say the closing prayer. Give ourselves a big hand.